So hello and welcome. This is the first podcast of 2022. Uh, I must admit with COVID, I can't really, I'm not entirely sure what happened since 2019, but just the world kind of seems to go in a blur. And what I try and do most weeks is introduce you to people that hopefully will add value to your business or career, or basically share some really good insights or topics and that kind of thing. And hopefully over the course of the year, I'm going to get on some really interesting guests from all around the world to talk about some different stuff. Uh, so Joanne, who I'm going to introduce you to today, I actually met at a, it was a conference called People Power, which was at the start of December, uh, so about a month or so ago. And basically I sat through her talk and it was, it was fascinating to do with inclusivity and uh, diversity and lots of different things. So I thought she would be a perfect guest for the podcast. Um, so what we're going to do over the next kind of 30, 40 minutes is have a, a great conversation about her background, how she got started, then really kind of go into some kind of key topics and stuff. And if you'd like to join us, please do. And then likewise, if you also uh, write any comments or questions in the chat, they'll also pop on my screen as well. And then for anyone that doesn't see this live, because I'm very aware that this is a bank holiday in the UK, uh, this all gets clipped up and goes onto YouTube as well. So Joanne, I'm just going to bring you in. There we go. Perfect. Uh, so everyone now can see you and hear you. <laughs> um, would you Afternoon, be Steve. Great to be here. No, brilliant. I must apologize that it's my holiday, but also it's no better way to start the, the day. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, I've had two weeks off now, which is the first time I've had two weeks off in a year. And actually, just to get back in the swing of things, it, it, you know, so I'm actually glad to kind of break the ice before everyone starts back tomorrow. Um, would you be happy to give like a quick kind of 30, 60 second intro about yourself just to help kind of set the scene? And then you know, obviously we'll go through all the usual stuff we normally talk about, about people's backstory and the detail. But I think it always really helps just to kind of tell people a bit about who you are, if that's cool. Yeah, well absolutely fine with that. Uh, so my name is Joanne Lockwood. I use the pronouns she and her. I describe myself as a trans woman. I'm, uh, I transitioned about five, well, coming for six years ago now. Uh, I spent most of my career running IT companies in, mm -hmm. in IT, in the IT world. Uh, I sold my business in 2017 and gender transitioned at the same time. So as if I wasn't making it hard enough for myself, big I, year. <laughs> complete for a complete reinvention so out of it uh out of my old life um and predominantly you know i, I looked back look back on it now and my, one of my desires at that time was to try and retain as much of my my life as i could and i look back on it and i haven't retained much in terms of my network my career uh finances where i live etc etc but yeah you know, i still i still have my family which to me was the most important thing and maybe my closest friends. But yeah, I, I look back and uh, my life is completely different than it was five or six years ago. Yeah, um, yeah completely different. So I must admit, so at the People Power event, basically I actually walked into your talk by chance, but you know, it was one of those really kind of great coincidences. And I must admit, it was just, it was one of those things that, that everything you talked about and I'm, I'm going to ask you to talk about it more than me because obviously you'll do a much better job but it was the kind of thing that as someone that does work with a lot of different businesses you know SMEs and onwards everything you said resonated and it's almost one of the things I was talking about on the podcast is likewise it's fine a white middle-aged straight man talking about certain things but actually I only and it's something you spoke brilliantly in the talk was that that only gives me one viewpoint and as much as I can empathize and try and understand what my black friends and their families and etc have been through there's only so much you can do so I love to partly do the podcast and actually be touch on it later about you know sharing good advice and stuff but the more we can both raise awareness on different stuff almost talk about why and how it can have genuine positive business kind of impact um but then also just you know change views and just share information and stuff and just share you know introductions to interesting people i thought it was really kind of fascinating um so the one of it's one of my kind of later questions but i'm tempted to kind of jump into it now so diversity and inclusion to you what does that mean i'm just very interested you know to kind of set the scene for the whole kind of talk in terms of um yeah. Yeah, I guess to you, what, what does that mean to you? Well, it's, it's a phrase, you know, diversity and inclusion is, 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 is an often used, misused, misunderstood phrase. It's not really, people don't see it as words anymore. They don't see diversity and inclusion. They see it as diversity, inclusion, DNI or DENI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes we throw a B in there for belonging, DEIB or Debbie, however you want to say it. And people often don't stop to think about it. Um, I 
probably summarize it as creating positive people experiences. Mm -hmm. And you know, I appreciate PPE is a bit topical <laughs> at the moment. Um, but, but fundamentally, it's about creating environments, experiences for people where they can thrive, and they mm -hmm. can feel full positive. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the output, because we, we, we talk about inputs, we talk about all the challenges of DEI, DNI, but the outcome really is creating environments where people can thrive. Mm -hmm. That's that's the ultimate output. That's the, that's the, that's the why we're doing this. Why does it matter? Because we want people to have the opportunity to succeed. So the diversity is recognizing that we're all different. We'll have our own life skills. We all have our lived experience, whether that's faith, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ+, maleness, femaleness, non-binaryness, whatever that may be. So we all have our, our different backgrounds, but fundamentally we are all different. Mm -hmm. So it's recognizing that, that our differences are our superpower and it's an, the inclusion element is recognizing that our differences mean that we need to be included in a different way. You know, we can't treat everyone the same. Mm -hmm. We're not motivated the same. We don't want to be communicated the same way. We're not empowered. We're not challenged in the same way. So the diversity is all different. Inclusion is recognizing that we all need to be empowered in a different way to allow us to succeed in the way that we want to succeed. Mm -hmm. So that's about creating this culture, creating this empowerment, creating environments where people can thrive whilst being very person-centric. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting, and it's just, because I love doing this, I just love talking to people, but it's likewise, one of my former guests, because a lot of my background as an engineer is in renewables, and for a long time, renewables was about the, the climate change argument more than the business case. When, I think it was about five, 10 years ago, there was a real shift when people actually realized that actually putting time and effort into diversification, into renewables, made perfect business sense because it made them more productive, diversified the risk, it did everything they wanted to do. And one of the things that really kind of struck me with your talk was actually the more you spoke, the more I kind of twigged, you know, because I'm human as well, I'm, you know, nobody's perfect, but it was almost really kind of acknowledging and investing in making people feel included and in, in the workplace and that kind of thing will have genuine impact on the bottom line. And it's that balance, I think, that, you know, do you ever find that some people worry? I guess it depends on the background, but almost, you know, in the same way that people used to poo-poo climate change protesters, I guess there's a there's balance, but climate change to do with uh, an agenda. But actually, yes, it kind of is in some ways, but also it makes perfect business sense to do it as well. I don't know, you know, almost some of the, do you ever find any barriers to what people yeah. think to really kind of invest in this area? There's a lot of people pushing back on you know, wokeness, yeah. politically yeah. correctness. Uh, you've seen it probably in the press recently about we're sanitizing humor, we're, we're, we're destroying comedy. Um, we're creating environments where, where people can't be themselves despite the fact the objective is so people can be themselves. I think often what we're forgetting is, let's take comedy or humour. Mm -hmm. If it's if it's constraining your comedy or humour, maybe your comedy or humour was at somebody's expense. And we think about the, you know, the British sense of humour, the sarcasm, the dry humour we have as, as, as in, in the UK. Often we've, if you look at the sitcoms, we look at the com comedy, comedy mm -hmm. clubs, they're all around about putting someone down and making, making laugh out of somebody's misfortune or their characteristic or highlighting their difference. So we, we can be funny without someone being the target of that humour. And I know com comedians, some more intelligent ones, maybe use themselves as mm -hmm. their own parody, which is, which is fine. And the danger of that is they're almost giving permission to take the... Take the, the uh, use, use their disabilities as humour, use their race as humour, whatever. So... Again, it's a very privileged thing to say, I'm okay with it, therefore it's okay. Mm -hmm. The danger is by, by using self-deprecation is you're almost saying, well, I've given you permission to laugh at me, therefore I'm giving you permission to laugh at other people. So I, I think we can use more intelligent humour. We can uh, develop our humour in ways where it's not at someone's expense. Mm -hmm. It's creating more intelligent conversations. And I think when we're looking at comedians maybe who rely on that... Um, deprecation that self-deprecation or or using others as the butt of the joke that can be quite lazy and i think that's what we're going to try and avoid because nobody wants to be offended or have an offense at but if you're sat in the audience and you're the butt of the yeah, joke yeah. how does that make you feel you could laugh it off but we you know we think about uh, phrases like microaggressions you know you may hear you may hear these jokes all the time 
and they eventually put, have, have a toll on you. Yeah, you, your Scottish accent, your Irish accent, mm -hmm. your um, your no, low get, IQ, get, your yeah. your disability. Yeah, it's, it's it's like looking at James Bond villains. <laughs> Every James Bond villain has a um, facial disfigurement, a limp. Uh, in the last one, No Time to Die, one of the villains had a, had a, a false eye that came out. Um, so we always see the villain that's being painted as less than complete, less than normal, whatever normal may mean. So we're creating this parody of good versus bad, where bad is always someone who has something wrong with them or something different about them. It's an mm -hmm. accent, it's a facial disfigurement, it's a limp, it's something. And how does that make you feel if you have a facial disfigurement, if you have a if you have a an Eastern European accent, if you're always finding that you are the brunt of the, you're always the nemesis, mm -hmm. that reflects into society. It reflects on how you, people treat you in society, how people treat you in the workplace. So, yeah, people do push back because people feel that they're losing something. They're losing the ability to be them. Mm -hmm. It's a very privileged statement because you've never had to think about the impact of your words or, or someone else's words on you, mm -hmm. if you don't suffer from that, from being impacted, then you probably don't understand what it's like for somebody else to have words used against them. So I think that's the challenge we have, is not to try and sanitise conversations, is not trying to police people's language, is not telling people how to think or what to think. What I would like to do is, when we talk about being woke, is, is awaken people mm -hmm. to think about the impact of their words, thoughts, and deeds. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure most people don't want to create a negative impact. Most people, if they realize that someone's impacted by their or by their actions, they'll be quite all taken back and think, oh, hang on a minute, that's not, yeah, I did, that wasn't my intent. So we often have great intent, but it's understanding your great intent may also have, be problematic. It may also be have negative connotations. And that's what we what I'd like to push back on people. Not tell you what to do. I don't want to tell you what to think. Mm -hmm. Just be aware of your impact on others. Okay. Um, so one of the things I like to do with the podcast is actually go through people's story. Because again, this all gets clipped up and goes onto YouTube. But then likewise, you're a pretty successful entrepreneur. And obviously you've been through and you've worked in a lot of different places. And then likewise, I also hope that people from all different backgrounds, you know, who might eventually kind of watch this, some might resonate with stuff that you say or whichever and if we can almost going back to sharing a bit about your story where you grew up what you were like at school that kind of thing just because the hope is that people might resonate with it might be going through the same kind of thing there might be where you were 10 years ago say and it's that balance of actually for me the more you see uh, people around that might be on a similar path or from a similar background or whichever I think it helps give people confidence and stuff so if you're happy to like where where did you grow up um, I was actually born in Singapore wow. uh, in a British medical hospital. Uh, father was in the Navy and he and my mum went out to Singapore probably about six months, eight months before I was born, which I think was about the minimum time frame my mum could have flown. So, yeah, I was born in the mid-60s in Singapore. We lived in, in Johor Bahru, which is in Malaysia, just over the causeway from Singapore. Mm -hmm. uh, my father's tour of duty in the Navy at that time came to an end and we came back to the UK in the, I think it was just in time for the World Cup in 1966. So we got back in time for the World Cup. Um, obviously a very successful year if you're English. And I grew up in a, a very typical lower middle class, I, would, I guess you would mm -hmm. call it, mm -hmm. family. My, my father was a, a gunnery artificer in the Navy. My mother was a full-time parent at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, latterly, they both became teachers. Uh, my mother became a, a primary school teacher. My father became a, a secondary school woodwork and technical drawing and metalwork type teachers or whatever you would call that these days. Uh, so, yeah, I, I grew up in a very middle class, lower middle class working environment. We didn't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I went to a, a typical state school from the age of whatever, five or six, through to my... Uh, to the end of my exam so again very very yeah, typical sort of very white very middle classish type environment just outside of Portsmouth okay and then obviously because it's a theme that you could talk about quite a lot the your, your trans journey at what point did you start to feel yourself if does that make sense 
Yeah, so I, I grew up in the, so born in the mid sixties. I, there, there was, there was no language in those mm -hmm. days, you know, mm -hmm. homosexuality was partially discriminated in 1967. Uh, there was no internet. There was two channels on telly and you had to tweak the dial to change the channel. Uh, my parents weren't very progressive. They weren't sort of, uh, they weren't hippies or rock and rollers or punks or anything. They were kind of just your average, uh, your, your average you know, family at the time. So there was no gay, lesbian, radical mm -hmm. type thoughts. Uh, music, if it wasn't um, classical, was frowned upon in our family. So, yeah, we we're very straight laced, very uh, putting bass and haircut. So there was no language around being trans. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know what it was, but I, I did appreciate that there was something in my head uh, that didn't align. I always felt like I was in the wrong queue, standing with the wrong people. Um, from what age did not you doing kind things of, I wanted to? Was that from a teenager I, or before? It's hard to put your finger on it. I, I'm very conscious that I don't want to imprint false memories and create false yeah. associations, and there's a danger of that. But I, I, I would say that around the age of five, six, six or seven, seven or okay. eight, in that sort of primary school, as it was in the early seventies, mm -hmm. um, I remember trying skirts up in the dressing up box. I remember wanting to play one of the ugly sisters in a pantomime. Um, I, I definitely had those thoughts. I definitely had those feelings. I was a, I was a cub and then a scout and I always felt like I wanted to be a brownie and a guide. Um, so yeah, it, it was really difficult. You know, you, you're, you're seven or eight, 10 years old, wherever, however old I was, you've got these kind of random thoughts in your head. There's no outlet. There's no description. There's no, there's nobody having these conversations. Mm -hmm. It's not a conversation you can bring up with your parents or anything. It was just. It is what it is. You just get on and be who you are. You know, you live live up to the programming you're given. And these thoughts didn't go away. They they kind of grew throughout my pre-teens, teens, and post-teen years. Um, manifest themselves in various ways. Uh, I, I, as I often say to people, you know, if if you're a little girl and you're caught trying your mum's shoes on your mum's makeup and your mum's jewelry it's really cute yeah maybe may, may get a bit of a bit of a sort of a, a stern talking to that's you know if you if you're really expensive makeup but it's kind of cute it's like, mm -hmm. oh is that sweet uh, but i was very conscious about the fact as a, as a as a little boy at the time had i been discovered it would have been not only wrong to be doing what i was doing but wrong from a from a it, was, it wasn't a boy thing especially in the 70s you know it, it's yeah especially I, in the 70s yeah and then so like how um as you kind of went through did you go to university i'm trying to go through the almost the careering as well because you uh, ended up no I, I left i left uh, school at the age of 16 and a half thereabouts in 1981 just about when charles and diana got married actually yeah. so uh yeah they got married in the july and i left i left school around about a week before that and uh now i joined the raf i was uh, oh, an wow. avionics apprentice i i was a communications engineer apprentice studying um, avionics radar and radio communications so that was my, my my early career in electronics all born out of a hobby that i thought i had all, all stemmed from a, a ladybird book on how to build a transistor radio <laughs> which my parents bought me so that became my my, my career of choice from a ladybird book uh, i look back on it and i don't think it was really my career choice but it was kind of one of those didn't know what i wanted to do at that, at that time, all my friends um, at the time signed up for college, went to university. Mm -hmm. my, neither of my parents had been to university. So it was not a, a natural push. I was not naturally pushed into a, into an academic sort of future. So my, my father was a, a an artificer in the Navy. He was a gunnery artificer. So he went through an apprenticeship program in the Navy. Mm -hmm. So I think it was kind of my influence was around going into an apprenticeship either in commerce, defense industry, or one of the armed forces. Um, didn't fancy the Navy at the time. Lots of talk about going on submarines. I didn't fancy that. And so, yeah, I got sipped into the RAF. Realized after about three or four, well, two and a half, three years that I really didn't understand electronics. It wasn't my, wasn't my forte. I wasn't really cut out for the kind of service life either. It just, 
didn't resonate. So I, I left. I left after, but just after three years. So did my training, mm-hmm. left. Uh, throughout that time, though, I was it was it was kind of instilled in us. Uh, you know, you, you get obviously the the military discipline. You're you're taught told about drugs are bad, being gay is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, this is early eighties. So we're all very conscious about the fact that it was illegal to be gay, illegal to be not straight, for whatever that meant in those days. You know, um, I guess you could call being trans, being as, or gender confused, as being not straight, whatever that meant in those days. So yeah, very conscious about the fact that uh, you had to perform in a very vanilla, very traditional way. Um, and so yeah, I repressed a lot of my gender identity I remember I remember going on exercise and the advice was to to wear tights under your combats to, as another layer of warmth but I had a different association with tights mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I was probably the only person out on exercise not wearing tights because it for me it just felt wrong it was like ah that was something that meant something to me and I'm just and I'm yeah. All my colleagues at the time were, were laughing and joking about them, but to me it meant it, it had a far more deep, deeper meaning. And seeing people taking the Mickey out of something that I, I found resonated with me was was quite strange. So, yeah, I, I've got memories like that that reinforced the fact that there was definitely a conflict in my head about how I felt about things. And then when you obviously you said that you transitioned circa five years ago when you set up your own business, left your former career, but like how was that kind of? At what point did you? Was there a single point where you thought, actually, that I want to transition? I'm just trying to, you know, because what I'm trying to do is almost that if someone yeah, who might watch this yeah. might be gender confused or, you know, whatever that they choose to term it, it's that balance of just, you know, I'm sure if they could hear someone else's experience, it will help them mm. almost go through it themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I left the RAF yeah, at the age of 19, back on Civic Street. Uh, I met my, my wife-to-be in mid-80s. Um, we got married in 87 at that time I was, yeah, it, it wasn't wrong for me. I, I wasn't fighting anything. I wasn't having a battle with myself. Um, so that my, my gender confusion was just something inside again, mm-hmm. there, there was, there's still no language, still no internet, still no commonality section 28. I think it was 1988. Was it Thatcher or something like that? Um, so yeah, I, I was able to have a, a I still have a successful marriage. Yeah, mm-hmm. developed a successful marriage. Have a, 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 uh, two uh, adult children now. Uh, one thirty, one twenty-seven. So yeah, I, I formed a very, very stable traditional family. Um, again, I, I wasn't overly queer or or trans or, or gay or anything like that. I was just a typical. People would describe me as a blokey bloke. Mm-hmm. I was you know, drank too much, partied too much, hang around with friends too much. Uh, started my own IT company mm-hmm. in uh, when I was in my early 30s, having worked for a couple of banks. Uh, built that company up over several iterations, over 15 to 20 years. Uh, but it, it was probably when I got to my mid to late 40s, where I don't know what it is. I think it's the kids get older. You've got your you've plateaued maybe in some of your life. You're not on the acquisition trail. You've kind of got what you want. You've got stuff. Um, and maybe you take your foot off the pedal slightly. And then once you once you start maybe coasting in life at that age, you start to look around, start to realise what it's, life's all around. And I think it just came to, came to the forefront of my mind in, in my mid to late 40s. I, I shared this inner secret that I had with my wife uh, in probably 2012. Mm-hmm. So that's 10 years ago, give mm-hmm. or take. Wow. 10 years ago this year. I can't believe that's 10 years ago. I <laughs> know, oh, it sounds scary, doesn't it? 2012, 10 years ago. I remember going to the Olympics. I stuck on with it 10 years ago. <laughs> you just said it, I just tweaked. But anyway, sorry, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Well, the Olympics, we, we often joke, my wife and I often joke about the Olympics. It's kind of our, I think from the beginning of the Olympics to the end of the Paralympics is when we were having these big challenging discussions okay. as, a, as, a, as, a, as a married couple. And out of those discussions allowed me to share my my transiness for want of a better word uh i didn't have a name for it i i it wasn't real it was kind of a hobby it was something i did in private i didn't go out i didn't meet anybody i didn't i didn't have a life as such it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't real in those terms it's something completely sort of private something that i that was my own 
but I, I think what happened was once I sat down and talked to my wife about it, we kind of didn't, it, did, it wasn't a threat at the time to our marriage because it was just something I was doing in the background. It was, my wife was able to see, see it as something that was just part of me, but not a threat. Um, but I think having talked about it openly, it gave it a life. Mm. It gave it, it gave it oxygen. It, started, it, it started to, yeah, it, it was, instead of being a, in a dark secret inside my head, it was now something I could talk about and share with somebody else. Um, I, I tried many times to put, put it back in the box. Mm -hmm. I, I went feral. I grew a pretty, pretty, pretty major beard. This is even the, after 2014. Okay. So it's yeah. in 2014. Yeah. So I, I grew a, a pretty kind of, mm -hmm. yeah. Bluto, yeah, Popeye and Bluto, a real big, thick, um, big, thick brown beard, um, quite bear-like, you know, people could <laughs> look like a bear at times. So, yeah, I, but then I got, I think it's mid-2014, around April, April, May, having looked in the mirror, I, I, I thought I'd fixed it, cured myself, you know, I, was, I think what it was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I think I put it behind me six months, I put it behind me. And I was just starting to pack up the drawers for the clothes and everything mm -hmm. else I had going on. And rather than put it in a, in a bin line and throw it away, the act of getting it out and it, it just suddenly, everything came rushing back to me. It, it was that point there, I realized that all I was doing really was just brushing under the carpet, ignoring it. So I shaved my beard off uh, almost that afternoon and I, I joined a trans support group uh, run by the Beaumont Society, who are a national charity. You've been going for many years. I, I found their, their local club, for whatever better way of putting it, support group, and started going to their monthly meetings. And there was two different ones, so I was going twice a month to these, these groups. And that was mid-2014. Um, I started building a network of friends on, on Facebook, on social media, on other, other networks. Gave myself a name, um, and then again, I, I once you've got a name, once you can describe yourself, people mm -hmm. start using your name. People start describing you, and you have you build friendships, you build relationships. That person, that embryo you created, suddenly has a life. It mm -hmm. is no longer um, something that's in your head, your fantasy, or, or, or something you, you you want to unlock. It becomes real. So I think that that's that's what kind of developed in in the mid mid 20s yeah whatever it is 2010s yeah. um and in 2016 it got to the point where it was just too big to keep a lid on it it was i got to the point where i couldn't keep living this double life uh i was developing two personalities two lives two it's like these two separate entities you know i do two groups of friends mm -hmm. i couldn't talk about that in the trans world, you're very kind of secretive about our, our other life because you didn't want it to leak out who you were. You didn't want to cross, cross over. You want to keep these two lives completely separate. And I just found that I was becoming these two people. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be one person. I wanted to be one person again. And the more I realized that the one person I wanted to be was my, was my female self. That was, the, that was the one that became the dominant mm -hmm person in my head um and there's a there's a i think it's a, a pixar cartoon called inside out yeah, i think okay. it is where there's these characters in someone's head and they put these balls down the shoe and i felt like the the angry red blokey character was driving my my head but all the female characters are not getting a look in and i think i remember i don't know if you remember that film but they, they yeah. end up sellotaping or tying the, the the male blokey angry guy to the chair and then all the women start driving the head that's exactly how I felt. I finally felt, wow, I've got rid of that angry blokey character, mm -hmm. that person who has been driving my head all this time, shutting the rest of me out. And now I'm in charge of my own head. The people, you know, how I want to be, who I am, is now running my life. And that, that's how it kind of felt. I think taking hormones reinforced that. The lack of testosterone in my bloodstream mm -hmm. affecting me made a huge difference. The estrogen made a huge, huge difference just in the way my outlook on life, my emotional state, etc. So yeah, by by mid twenty sixteen, I I couldn't keep a, a lid on this. I came out publicly on Facebook. Um, I wouldn't say that I was proud 
of the way I did it. It was a bit of one of those sort of like drunken cries for help at two yeah, o'clock yeah. in the morning type things. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't regret it. I, I regret the way I did it, mm-hmm. not what I did. So mm-hmm. I would rather have not been such a drama queen about it <laughs> and maybe structured it in a different way. But it had the impact of ripping the sticky plaster off. It was just, it was out. I owned it. And that, that's kind of, that was kind of mid-2016. Because I imagine that was pretty difficult to do. Um, well, it, it was, I was pretty drunk when I made the post. So it was, <laughs> I don't mean it just the one-off uh, post, but it's that balance <laughs> of where to, to go through that journey and especially, you know, close family and friends and that kind of thing. But the reason why I think it's important going back to like the diversity business thing is that when... Would it be correct to say that you didn't quite feel 100%, you didn't feel yourself for a while, and hence why you said when you were fighting between the two different personalities? Um, because what I'm trying to say is that yeah, if we can create a workplace or an environment or whichever, where actually people do and can be themselves, you know, you can be a lot more happy, I guess. Yeah, I, undoubtedly, yes, creating a workplace where we can we can be ourselves, we can talk about the challenges we've got. Um I, I would say the challenge of a gender transitioning or coming out or being open mm-hmm. for being trans is is a different dimension on top of coming out as being, say, gay or lesbian or, okay. or, or, or bi. Because when, you're, when you come out as gay, it's your sexuality. It's who you want to sleep with, who you want to have relations with, who you want to be romantically engaged with, who you want to spend your life with that is completely different to suddenly changing your whole persona about how people perceive you. Um, the hopes, dreams, aspirations, the family, how they see you is completely different. I'm not saying coming out as gay is easy either, but what I'm saying is the extra, the extra dimension of, of your gender mm-hmm. transition is, is a whole extra, yeah, as I say, extra dimension on, on the whole thing. Um, I think what I found was at the time, no matter, no matter how, I, I didn't appreciate what the impact my transition would have on those around me, those closest to me. The challenge was, I think, I at the time fell into the trap of the, you know, the YOLO trap, where it's your life, you only, you know, one, your life, live, you know, you, you, live, you only live once. Mm-hmm. If people don't accept you, give them two fingers and get on with your life, you know, find the, find the people that will accept you. I think there's a lot of that advice, if you form of a better way of putting it, that you get given, not just being trans, but a lot of things. But people, it's easy to say, yeah, just do it. I did it. Or, but you don't know how many people actually did it, how many people are just fantasists, how many people have got lived experience. Do they understand your circumstances? So that the challenge is, is if you want to retain your life, your family, your friends, what you have, then you have to recognize that this has to be a partnership, has to be a collaboration with the, mm-hmm. with the people who are involved in that. And I think I, I've started off by believing that my transition was about me, very mm-hmm. selfish, very, it was, it was, it was my transition. Everybody just needed to get, get the hang of it and accept me. Then we can all move on. I think we can also use that analogy in the workplace. You know, you, you transition at work, just accept me so we can get on with it. I think that what I've learned after five or six years, you know, the journey I've been on, is that it's around working with people. You know, mm-hmm. I can't demand acceptance. I can't demand respect. I can't demand these things of people. What I can do is I can be a good person. I can be the best version of me I can be. And I can be somebody that, that is respectable. People will respect. I can be somebody that people do want to love. People do value. So I, I had to be the person that I wanted people to see mm-hmm. uh, and not make those demands up front. And that's the challenge I found in my early days, that I just wanted people to accept me. Mm-hmm. But I forgot that they didn't know me. But the thing is, you know, to be fair, there's no instruction manual, or maybe there is, but as far as I'm aware, <laughs> to kind of do this. And it's that balance of where, you know, everyone in hindsight can think about how they would have done things differently five years ago 10 years ago whichever but it's you know you people you do the best you can at the time based on what you know and you're obviously going through a very difficult time completely completely and i think 
what I learned was I had to course correct as I went. I, could, I didn't just set off on it on this big, mm -hmm. bold plan. I realized very quickly that that plan wouldn't work. You know, me marching off into the distance was a very lonely type journey. In order to achieve that, I had to, let's say, do it collaboratively, which in some ways is slower. In some ways, it could be, you could argue it's more painful. Um, but the end result is that you've brought people with you on that on that journey, and yeah. you know, the long term benefit is you you've 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 maintained those relationships. And something that was in my head for a lot of my life was a is a brand new bit of information for people. They have to get to know who you are. Mm -hmm. you know, as I say, you, you can't suddenly say I'm now this new person like me. Um, even with my friends, even with my work colleagues, you can't just make that demand. You have to, you have to, you have to allow yourself to, I, I you know, go through a new pub go through a second puberty. Mm -hmm. You have to discover your own identity, your own dress sense, your own personality, your own likes. Um, yeah, with all of that, I say puberty type thing, you know, dancing, clubbing, drinking, <laughs> meeting people, socializing. And it's all about trying to develop your personality mm -hmm. and know who you are in the world. And you need to do that. And I think I, I my, 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 my only aim was to stop being 22 again <laughs> and start acting my age, you know, so I was keen to go for not get stuck in the 22 bubble mm -hmm. and being, a, being an everlasting teenager. Um, I wanted to go back to being time mid fifties. I wanted to be a mid fifties woman and be happy with being a mid fifties woman. And that's what I realized that I needed to come out of that, that teenage bubble mm -hmm. and just get on with my life again. And that, that was the challenge. And I, I think when we you mentioned about the workplace, I don't think we talk about this challenge enough. You know, we, we, we want to transition people. We want to put them on a conveyor belt, check them out at the other end. Um, but like anything in life, there is, there's the heavy lift in the middle. Mm -hmm. There's there's the bit that gets you from A to B. Is that you know, I don't like the word journey or, or all these kind of words that we use. They're quite uh, um, they don't really express what's, what's gone on. But there is a whole lot of lived experience in that you have to get to know yourself. You have to like yourself. You have to yeah. be proud of yourself. You have to be comfortable with your own skin. You have to be comfortable in your own gender identity. You have to, you know we spend all of our lives dealing with gender programming. You know, mm -hmm. the blue, the pink, boys' toys, girls' toys, expectation for boys, expectation for girls. It's incredibly difficult to unlearn and relearn mm -hmm. that that programming. Do you feel and that's that, probably the hardest thing I found? Do you do you feel that things have maybe changed? So if you had a a ten year old now, uh, versus a ten year old in the seventies, the way things are treated now, I guess the fact that you have the internet, people can find out about things quicker, find a community, find people to talk to. Do you think it's easier now than it would have been for people uh, 20, 30 years ago? I, I, I think the answer is, it's different. Okay. It's different. Um, is it easier being a kid today than it was in the 60s? It's different. It's different. Um, yeah, I used to go and play in the park, run around the streets, come back when it got dark, mm -hmm. no phones, no way of communicating. It was a safer world, less cars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now there's a lot more social media and there's a lot more pressure to conform. Your identity is more open. So if you're in a, in, in a positive and supportive environment, maybe yes, it is better. But if you're in an environment where you're, you're less secure, you don't have the support network around you, okay. Uh, the hurt and the hate can be amplified on social media. So I, I, I think there's there's new challenges, and I, I, I don't want to get into any it's better or worse. The challenges are the challenges different. are significantly different. Uh, yes, we can talk about sexuality now. Yes, we can talk about gender identity, but there's we look, we look in the papers, the mainstream media, the news, whether well, Twitter, etc., social media. There's a lot of battles going on mm -hmm. around trans support, trans awareness. We've got massive queues and waiting. You know, people say, "Well, yeah, you can be trans now. Yeah, we accept you." But there's a it's a four or five year waiting list at the gender identity clinics. Most GPs aren't ready to talk to you. So have we moved on? Yeah, we moved on. What we've done is we create an expectation that society is willing to accept, and then slam the door. We don't provide the support. We don't provide the backing. We get demonised 
in the press, we get demonised in social media. So in a way, yes, having more recognition and awareness has been fantastic, but it's been met with a backlash and lack of resources to support. So is it better? Okay. It, it no, sure as heck is different. It's a good one. <laughs> I just, I, I like to, you know, get people's opinion and uh, ask them and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so circa five, six years ago, you started Sea Change Happen as your own kind of consultancy business. Would yeah, you like it, to t- it's, tell it's people? It's a consulting, it's a consulting vehicle. Yeah, it's a... Uh, so what you so do? I, I sold my IT company. I sold my IT company. Um, I was tired of IT. I got I got really frustrated with it. I've been there for so long. I we were it was IT support, small businesses, and after twenty odd years of crawling around in desks, dealing with people's backups, people's anger and frustration when things didn't work, I was just tired of it. It was just becoming something that I just oh, can't do this anymore. So at the same time, a gender transition became important. So at the end of 2016, uh, my business partners uh, offered to buy me out, which was great. So I sold my business beginning of 2017. I signed a non-compete clause that I wouldn't do IT again, which I was quite happy with. I didn't want to. I was tired of the, I was tired of the IT game. And I, I had this ambition, if you like, at the time to create or help advocate in a world where trans people could get acceptance okay. i mean i i was transitioning i had a lot of internalized transphobia i had a lot of internalized issues uh I, the trans people i knew were had a very similar outlook on life where there was frustration there was lack of support lack of acceptance and this was six years ago and if, if you look back six years we've come a long way in six years in terms of knowledge and and and, and what we're talking about but those, that time there, I was still unusual, mm-hmm. very unusual. I'm not saying I'm, I'm saying I'm commonplace today. So I, I had the ambition to be a kind of a, a trans awareness person, if you like, um, training, uh, public speaking, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was my kind of early days ambition. And I think what happened was over the course of the first year, I realized that it wasn't just about me. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, I felt quite, inauthentic and quite disingenuous thinking it was about me it became very i became sort of thinking oh it was all about being trans people need to know about being trans and i suddenly realized when i met i built a network of people who in the disability space in the in the anti-racism space and other and other, other dni type topics that the, the the challenge was bigger than just talking about characteristics inclusion isn't about dividing people into characteristics and, and find solutions for, for future characteristics it's creating equitable mm-hmm. opportunity for all so i think that's what that's what dawned on me as as i went through 2017 into 2018 so i i say i pivoted i i evolved it into being not just around trans awareness uh but also including um inclusion awareness I, so I, I describe myself as inclusion and belonging specialist how do we create spaces where people can belong but like uh, on that, on that topic, like from a business strategy point of view, you know, in the same way, if you have a bakery, you might evolve to a sell coffee. You know, you would say to any business, it makes sense to actually be as inclusive, but actually evolve and change. And I guess you've done exactly that. That likewise, also because of your backstory and knowledge and experience, that's what gives you all the credibility and empathy to talk about different things in a way that, you know, I think it's brilliant to kind of hear, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, I, I know many people who are disability advocates, and they are that, that's what they do. They're disability advocates, and they they don't want to dilute that by talking about anything else other than disability. <coughs> there are people who are race advocates who mm-hmm. only want to talk about race or gender in the workplace. That's all they want to talk about. So there's, there are a lot of people out there who quite rightly focus on their laser point narrow focus a niche. Um, I think what happened was I didn't want to be a trans person talking about being trans. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I felt that I had more to offer than just talking about myself. So that, that's why I moved away from just being solely focused on, on, on trans awareness. I, I just, it wasn't making me satisfied as a person. Yeah, I, I felt I had more to give in a different direction. So I still, I still promote trans awareness to do a lot of training courses. It's, it's a big part of my business. But in the same way that I didn't want to do IT anymore, I recognised that also my transition, the pain of my transition, the passion I had when I transitioned changed over time. 
so my life I, I, I built I built a new life um I successfully maintained my marriage and my my my, my parenthood my children and my relationship my family so I success, successfully navigated all those elements so I, I lost a lot of the pain I lost a lot of the activism if you like um my business became established I wasn't some of the pain I had trying to apply for roles, permanent roles as a trans person through recruitment agents, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. being brushed back, feeling that I was being discriminated against, albeit subtly, mm-hmm. not overtly. So a lot of that pain faded. And I also realized there was more people transitioning on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. There were more people who wanted to come and tell their story. So I didn't feel I needed to keep in that, in that zone to keep telling my story. There were other people coming along telling their story. Uh, so it was a kind of an evolution through that, through personal satisfaction, through personal gratification, not wanting to be seen as a trans person, just being trans. Mm-hmm. I, I felt that I had a, uh, a a bigger bigger role to play that I wanted to play than just limiting myself to just talking about that. So that's, that's kind of how it evolved, really. And I, I wanted to... I wanted to be a person who was talking about inclusion and belonging, talent acquisition, creating um, environments where people can thrive across the board. Mm-hmm. And I, often, I, I think I said at the time, I, I think I, if I can create an environment, create, create a world where everybody feels included, then I am I am everybody. I'm included, but it's part of that. And I, we often talk about inclusion when we talk about creating accessible workplaces, uh, lifts, ramps, stairwells escalators to allow people who are have a physical disability to access premises it also allows people who have hip replacements who break their skiing or or just feel exhausted one day they think i don't want to walk up the stairs so creating environments where everybody can succeed and thrive means that i'm everybody means i can succeed and thrive as well so that's how i kind of saw it and i still see it that way i get a lot more satisfaction about talking about the bigger picture mm-hmm. than just talking about me. But I think I, also I, I get, adds a lot more I get credibility. Bored talking well. about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think, that was one of the things that struck me about the People Power Talk was almost that the, the um, mm. it was it was the, the broad breadth of knowledge that I could see could be used in a lot of different places for different businesses. That it's just it it, it, it resonated with me. I thought I thought it was really good. Um, you obviously you you not just do this. You occasionally do you still do the stand up comedy? I know COVID might have put a pause on that a little bit um, how did you get into that i, I I'm, I'm a member of the professional speaking association and each year that the we have a an annual conference um to get together and, and meet and on the friday night there's, there is a speaking competition there's a comedy competition mm-hmm. and uh I, I went to my first one i think in 2018 i thought oh that comedy looks <laughs> fun <laughs> In a, in a in a kind of challenging way, and I'd I'd happen to say, say something at the end of the evening. I said, "How do how do I get my name down to uh, be in the comedy next year?" He said, "No." He said, "Well, you're talking to the right person. Your name's in." I went, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so that was kind of my 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 brave moment. But I I'd uh, in my previous life, I was the national president for a, uh, a club, and I used to travel around the UK and Europe and the world. Uh, in the UK, I, I was going to sort of club meetings. Uh, mainly black tie type events, uh, and I was always put on as the 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 pre speaker warm up if you like. So yep. I would do yep. the state of the nation's talk sort of thing, and inevitably there's a there's a desire for the the national president to be a little bit entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got quite used to doing a kind of an after dinner, ten minute comedy <laughs> light hearted talk. So I wasn't I wasn't. I wasn't new to the stand up or the, the sing for your supper type talking. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 so I, I volunteered at this comedy night. Uh, I, I titled the, uh, the, 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 uh, the sketch, um, uh, stupid questions not to ask a trans person, I think brackets, AKA how not to be a dick. Um, and I delivered that. It went down well. I got, got good feedback on it. Uh, I then had an opportunity to deliver it again a couple of weeks later at an event in London. And then I had another opportunity when I was, when I was in Melbourne, Australia, uh, to, with a friend of mine to do an open mic night mm-hmm. comedy club in, in Melbourne, in the Highlander Bar in Melbourne, downtown Melbourne. So I did it there. So I did it three times. And I think I've, uh, but 
So it's, it's never really a... Because I think it's one of those things... It takes things, me out of my comfort zone. Like we, when we started yeah. talking about comedy, but almost I think comedy is a great way to uh, diffuse tension and almost to win people over. And I just think, likewise, I, I still believe that being able to do comedy on stage it's like the ultimate stress test for public speaking i remember i reached out to there's a guy in the oh, northeast completely. called uh, alfie joey and I actually said to him look is there anywhere where you can go where they teach you to do stand-up comedy not that I'm, I'm not funny but it was almost where but to put yourself through that would help that when you do speak on stage about work stuff i think you would be better if you've actually got a background and you, you feel comfortable and and that was why i you know as someone that does uh you know public speaking you do very very well Likewise, I just wanted to pick your brains about the the journey and how you got into it and that kind of thing. Um, there, there is a this this event that I I did the the, the comedy act at um, after the, the professional speaking conference. He actually puts on a day of comedy training, um, so he, he has a professional comedian who mm -hmm. coaches people who want to do be on, mm -hmm. do the comedy slot the next night. I've never done it. <laughs> Um, I'm one of these people with this, I don't take advice. So I tend to, I'd rather fail on my own merit and succeed on my own merit than, than, uh, to be coached if you like. So I've never done it myself, but several people have done it and they've been very successful at it. Um, and this, the same event has run three or four times since. And, and there has been a, like a, a, a comedy sort of training coaching session the day before. So yeah, you, you, there are places that will, um, take you through how to build a five minute set talked about the pitfalls about timing around how to structure how to get the story right the pace all these mm -hmm. kind of things how to wait for the laugh how to how to signpost and drop it at the end you know all those kinds Cause of things. so much of that um, is i know obviously you mentioned the psa before but that balance of if you give a a talk you know same as you did at people power i think the ability to, to hold a room and talk to people is a real skill that i just think there's really good crossovers there um anyway i am conscious of time i, I agree i agree I, I agree. I, I was, was going to say, I, 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 comedy, I still see as something that pushes me out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying stage speaking. I'm in a comfort zone, but it's different. But comedy takes me to, to pushes me a little bit further out. And the last time I delivered it, it was probably back in August, and it was the first time I delivered that comedy routine where I really enjoyed delivering it. I felt like I owned the stage. It's taken me five or six times of delivering virtually the same set mm -hmm. to get to a point and come out and go, wow, I enjoyed that. But things, a lot of the professional comedians and what, you know, um, Jimmy Carr and that kind of thing, they practice the same routine hundreds of times before they actually get in mm. the, the arena because they change the different things. And it's, um, anyway, I just, I just think it's a really interesting kind of crossover. Um, so I tend to end every interview with three main questions. Uh, again, these all get clipped up to go onto YouTube. And I actually find these really interesting just in a way to learn from other people's kind of experience and what they've been through and that kind of thing. Um, the first one is, would you be happy to share the best piece of advice you've ever had? Best piece of advice I've ever had? Um, someone told me when I started my new business, it's going to take me two years to get somewhere. I'm not saying it's the best bit of advice I've ever had, but it's the bit of advice I remember. And they were right. And I think it's like anything. You have to become... There's a lot of investment in time and effort mm -hmm. to get things going. And it does take you two years. It takes you two years. It probably took two and a half, three years before I got to the point where I was happy. But yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a good bit of advice is if you are starting a business, you are doing something... Then there's no quick fix. There's no there's no free lunch. There's no easy dinner here. It mm -hmm. is kind of it's proportionate to the amount of graft you put in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if you get lucky or have a lot of money behind you, you've still got a lot of learning to do. And I, there's a lot of learning went on in those first two years. But people always say that the the harder you work, the luckier you get, which I think is uh, exactly is, is true as well. Um, the next question, and I think hopefully it's quite relevant to you, but almost if you were to give advice to your younger self. And you could pick the 10-year-old at school, the chap in the RAF, yourself 10 years ago, five years ago. If you were to give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Um, I suppose the, the answer to that would be, it'll be okay. Just do what you're going to do. 
believe in yourself, trust yourself. Um, won't be easy, mm-hmm. but you'll get there. I think that's the advice I would give. Um, just be you. I think it's really good advice just for people generally. Like even I went for a walk from my house into Newcastle before. And again, start of a new year, you think, oh, okay, what goals and things do I want to achieve and whichever. But the truth is people often put too much pressure on themselves or they try and be what someone else wants them to be or whichever. And I think sometimes, yeah, you're right. It's just, you know, be happy with what you've got. Take your time. And I just think that's a really kind of good piece of advice. Is there anything you would like to yeah. talk about or plug before we go? Um, no, I, I, I took, I took part in a Channel 4 documentary. So if you, if you are interested in finding out more about me or myself, my wife, GMI gender, gender transition. So that it followed us for three years. We had a TV film group. Wow. Uh, you can find that on, on Channel 4, all four catch up. It's the TV series called The Making of Me. I'll send you a link to that. And we also appeared on Gogglebox. So we, uh, <coughs> So our segment of that uh, that documentary was featured on Gogglebox. So I've had the pleasure of being talked about by the Goggleboxes. How uh, did the Gogglebox thing go? It's funny that with when I go back to my mum's and like now we're very I'm a very different person to who she was and whichever. But actually, when I go back for say for Christmas, the one thing that we always kind of link over. But when I put Gogglebox on, it's kind of I just I, hopefully they didn't slay you, but it's one of those things that people always say what you think, and I was actually really enjoy really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I found it. Um, I imagine it's different when it's you actually on screen. Okay. Uh, I, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Okay. Uh, I do, I do cringe. That, I mean, at one point they, one of the one of the goggles says, "Oh, she looks like a dinner lady," and then a friend said, "That's not look. She's that wasn't look she was going for, Liv." And so I always find that you know, and I, I found that quite. Um. Yeah, it's, that hit home. And also someone said, oh, you look like Nana Mascuri. I thought, oh, that wasn't the look I was going for either. So it, it kind of, there's a couple of comments like that that make, those are the ones that make me cringe. But what makes me happy and warm is the genuine warmth they had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. They talked about it. And you could hear their thought processes between them going, oh, I don't get that. I don't get that. I don't get that. And it was really interesting to hear people talking about me and being honest about when what it's they not thought to your about face. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not to my face. But it taught me to understand what people are thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, yeah, one of the biases we have is we believe we know what people are thinking. Yeah, yeah. We don't. We've got no idea what people think. And actually to, to be a fly on the wall or on the fly on the wall is really quite powerful. Um, so that, that taught me a lot about myself it taught me a lot about people and it gave me a lot of hope because the questions they were asking were valid they were genuine they were kind of i understood their confusion and yeah i thought it was really powerful so yeah it was was a great experience to to have been on gogglebox on gogglebox if you like Uh, cool well it's been a pleasure to kind of speak to you i appreciate it to bank all day and also for me it's a great way to start the year to actually just speak to different people and hopefully with the year i'll hopefully kind of keep doing this um hopefully we've raised some people's awareness or just ideas on maybe some of them you know might not have met a trans person before and it's that kind of balance or likewise you might have someone that's slightly younger on youtube or maybe slightly older who wants to feel and experience someone else's background and their journey and i think hopefully you know i love to kind of learn more about people as well and that kind of thing as well so i appreciate yeah it. if anyone wants to get hold of me they, they can ca- they can catch up me on linkedin i'm sure you'll put it in the notes but yeah, yes joe lockwood jo lockwood on linkedin uh find me track me down you can drop me a message happy to have a chat i've i've done a lot of uh ad hoc informal chats with people who have either transitioning themselves they've got a child or a parent or somebody in the family transitioning i've had a lot of people reach out to me on linkedin uh, having watched gogglebox or having watched the the documentary so no more than happy so if you if you have if you'd like to find out more or you'd like to have a chat with me about how i can create awareness in your organization love to do that as well perfect and that is the perfect ending to the interview so thank you for your time have a wonderful i guess rest of your bank holiday which i know it's after five o'clock now uh, but i no, genuinely appreciate your time and hopefully i'll speak to you soon Actually, bye, 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 bye. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye.